Suzanne Stabile is a highly sought after speaker and teacher, known for her engaging laugh, personal vulnerability, and creative approach to Enneagram instruction. As an internationally recognized Enneagram master, Suzanne has conducted over 500 Enneagram workshops over the past 25 years. And she joins us today in this conversation as we discuss her latest book, The Path Between Us. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Good, True, and Beautiful. Hey everybody, Ashton Gustafson here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. I am so excited today. Um, There's a young lady in Dallas, Texas that I've admired for some time now. Um, Not long ago, uh, she... um, kind of co-authored a book called The Road Back to You about the Enneagram, a beautiful intro into the Enneagram. And coming out very soon, she has a new book called The Path Between Us, an Enneagram Journey to Healthy Relationships. Suzanne Stabile is her name. She, uh, in Enneagram circles, um, she is one of the most sought-after voices, a beautiful soul. She does such a great job of just breaking this thing down uh, in a way that we can all understand it. Uh, and for a long time, I've admired her and her work, and I'm super grateful to have her at the table and at our conversation today. So, Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, and thanks for referring to me as a young lady. <laughs> well, that, my mother taught me how to do that. So, well, she uh, did a good job. <laughs> so, um, where do we begin? Because the the Enneagram isn't a new conversation for for everyone here at Good, True, and Beautiful, but I, I want to for sure get to know you and kind of you and your work in the world. Um, when you introduce yourself to circles that maybe people haven't met you before, where do you begin? Um, well, I, I actually, as soon as I'm introduced anywhere publicly, the first thing I do is uh, introduce my husband whether he's with me or not. (laughs) Um, And I do that because he is um, the best person I know. Hmm. And he's the uh, tether. I I, I am tethered to him in a way that helps me be faithful to what I think is mine to do. Hmm. I, um, we have four adult children and they are all married and we have, seven grandchildren and an eighth on the way. And they all live in the Dallas area where we are. And I'm crazy about Joe. So left to my own, I I would be inclined to kind of park myself here and <laughs> uh, spend time with all of them, supporting them in what they love and uh, what they do with their days. And Joe continually calls me back to uh, what's mine to do and what I have to offer that no one else offers the way that I do. Hmm. So he is a former Roman Catholic priest. Uh, He went to high school seminary at 14. He left uh, the priesthood when he was 40 and married me. And I was a single mom with three children and we had a fourth. And he's been a pastor in the United Methodist Church for the last 30 years. Wow. Wow. So um, I I start there because that's my starting place. That's Mm. um, um, that's how I know myself best. Mm. After that, I am relational by nature. And so my way of being in the world is 
increasingly challenging because we are um, losing our grace and ability for relating to one another through difference and around uh, common interests. And I'm very concerned about that. I was adopted as an infant. My dad actually delivered me and then wow. uh, suggested to my mother the next morning that they really needed a little girl. So I must have been quite something as a newborn because they decided in like 48 hours to take me home. Wow. And they already had children who were boys who were 18 and 15. So um, uh, my brothers looked like my parents and I didn't look like anybody. And so as a young child, I started trying to see who I acted like so that I could find some sense of belonging in that. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching how people behave since. And so Joe and I, outside of uh, his work at Highland Park United Methodist Church here in Dallas and my work on the road, we have a ministry called Life in the Trinity Ministries that we started in the Catholic Church, actually. And we have a center here in Dallas. And that center is specifically for the enhancement and teaching of spiritual practices for adults. Beautiful. Yeah, you have, um, just from afar, you have such a heart for compassion, unity, um, unity, uh, and not just uniformity, right? Um, and so this this ministry, um, h- how long have you guys had this together? Uh, and and refresh me on it again. The Trinity Mystery is that what Li- it is? Ministry. Life and Life in the Trinity Ministry. Life in the Trinity Ministry. And it's thirty three years old. Wow! Oh my goodness, that's beautiful. Yeah, we've been at it a long time. Yeah, you sure have. And so, as uh, um, I guess to get to where you are today, this this kind of pursuit morphed into different things. Um, maybe at some point, someone handed off this enneagram to you, and you're relational by nature. You're keenly interested in personality and how people navigate the world, and that has led you to books and podcasts and speaking. Um, how I guess. How long have you been working and learning and using uh, the Enneagram in your life? Um, well, we originally started just teaching uh, traditional spiritual practices. Joe was with the Vincentian Fathers, so he lived in community for 26 years. Wow. And he's, uh, he's 71 now. He's had a spiritual director since he was 14. Um, so he's way ahead of me. Man, I'd, I'd say, I'm like, golly, someone give me a spiritual director at 14. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm really, I'll never catch up, but I'm getting a little better. And um, then uh, actually Joe called Richard Rohr one day. Hmm. Uh, they have similar backgrounds. Richard's Franciscan and Joe is Vincentian, but they both went to high school seminary. They have an awful lot in common. And um, Father Rohr actually started the Center for Action and Contemplation in 1987, which is the same year that we uh, incorporated Life in the Trinity gotcha. Ministry. So uh, Joe called him and said, uh, my wife and I would just like to come visit with you. And uh, we were in Dallas, and he was in Albuquerque, and he said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we went. And after a time of getting to know him, um, 
he uh, had written a book about the Enneagram that I read and I wanted to talk with him about that. And we went to Albuquerque to do that. And he suggested that I um, study the Enneagram for five years before I talked about it. Wow. And um, you know that I, I just can't tell you how hilarious that request <laughs> is of me, but uh, he's very commanding. And um, so I said, okay. So I've been teaching for 24 years. I've been studying for most of the 30. Wow. And I, um, it, it, it is intuitively comfortable for me hmm. to see the world through the wisdom of the Enneagram. And because he encouraged me to study it for so long before I taught it or talked about it, I um, I learned how broad and how deep it is and how many ways it could be used, even though it took me these 25 years to develop those ways. Wow. Wow. So as we just kind of begin this conversation, uh, Father Rohr says, um, why don't you take five years? and uh, do some do some snooping around, get comfortable with this tool. Um, what happened after year five? Did you say, okay, I've done my homework, or where did it go from there? I did, and he said, <laughs> that's exactly what I said, and he said, well, why don't you uh, offer an event huh. um, to help people get to know their number? And um, he said, why don't you, of all the people you know, why don't you pick three or four people that you think are each of the nine numbers, and then teach them for a day and see if you're right. Hmm. So I did. And um, in my doing that work, I uh, I just recognized immediately that I was t- touching something, There's something in here. people that they knew about themselves, hmm. but they couldn't articulate. Hmm. And uh, not to jump the gun a bit, but you are dominant in type two. Is that correct? Right. I am. Um, which what we know about twos is they are keenly intuitive. Um, they kind of can read people, have a sense of people. Um, am I right on that? My wife's a two. You are right on that. I would, I would use a little bit different language uh, because I, I also think other numbers are intuitive. What I would say is that uh, twos are in the heart triad, which is also called the feeling triad. Yep. And, um, you know, if you're in the feeling triad, which is twos, threes, and fours, then what that really means is that you're messed up when it comes to feelings. And the reality for twos is that they feel other people's feelings, but they really struggle to name their own. Hmm. Interesting. And so what gets labeled as being particularly intuitive is in part intuitive and it's in part because twos are feeling your feelings are the feelings of the people in the room and not their own. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I guess our greatest asset can sometimes be our, our greatest hurdle at times. Always. Yeah. Anagram language is that um, unlike what we tend to do culturally in terms of wanting to get rid of parts of ourselves that we don't like, and the reality in using the Enneagram, you have to kind of wrap your arm around all of you because the best part of you 
is also the worst part of you. Hmm. Well, and well. to get rid of that means you you lose all the goodies too. Hmm. Well, I mean, we're like eight minutes in, and I'm going. This is beautiful, so deep and so wide. Um, so to, to get us where we are today, you just a couple years ago, the um, uh, the road the road back to you kind of just I mean it was this huge book. Everyone started reading it. I think it, I mean in my opinion, it it was uh, the talk of the town for a long time. Um, and I know that that book took you down a lot of different roads, many more. Um, rooms that you were teaching in, the podcast, and so forth. Um, but your next book that's coming out, and when does it release again? April 10th. April 10th. Okay, so April 10th the book comes out, um, and it's The Path Between Us. Um, it was, was this the plan all along, or did this just kind of connect one day where you're like, well, now that we wrote a book about finding out about who you are, now we need to dissect this thing about who we are, and then how we're connected to the people that are in our lives and those that we've been entrusted. I actually always wanted to write the relationship book, but I wanted it based on my understanding of the numbers. Hmm. And so a really good primer um, would be the groundwork for other uh, books that might come that might follow and um, I, I, the road back to you certainly is that I'm really proud of it um, I think it stands alone in making the world a better place it just just the awareness that other people right. don't see what you see yeah. and don't process information the way you do can be a big asset in terms of us beginning to um, return to some kind of civility and discourse and um, appreciation and care for one another in, in ways that we're losing. But I think everything requires structure. So while we live in a time where everything is uh, a soundbite, you can't really uh, do much transformative work with soundbites. Hmm. You know, I, I'm a 60s person. Uh, I'm 67. And in the 60s, um, there were posters everywhere that had these uh, sayings on them that seemed deceptively simple to me and probably were. Um, and now that's kind of the way people pick up information is with one liners or one or two sentences. And I, I don't. I guess that might assist us mm -hmm. in thinking about doing things differently, but transformation is a different thing. That's right. That's right. So, um, I tried in the path between us to provide structure and understanding so that transformation in, uh, ourselves and in relationships with others is possible transformation with situations at work and in the community and in our families and with the person uh, that we love the most. I really work to not have the path between us just be about romantic relationships yeah. or just about one-to-one -one close relationships. You know, and, and let me just say, in reading uh, this latest work, this is one of those books that's going to 
um, as uh, those of us that are leaders, moms, dads, parents, um, husband, wife, leadership, business, uh, pastoring, ministry, whatever, um, I, I feel like this is one of those books that I very well may revisit week after week, um, month after month, in, in handling moments um, and people that we've been entrusted. And you talk a lot about transformation and, and this path between us about relationally connecting with people. When you use the word transformation, what are you leading us towards? Are, are you talking about this path between us and how relationships can lead to transformation? Is that greater unity, greater compassion, deeper empathy, um, more love, peace, patience, kindness? How, how do you, I'm interested to hear how you define transformation through this lens. Um, well, actually, I'll start with the basics about change and transformation, which I learned from Richard Rohr. And that is that change occurs when you take on something new. And transformation occurs when something old falls away, hmm. usually something beyond your control. Hmm. And I, I think um, I could talk about that on a number of levels in uh, our understanding of relationships because um, civility in relationships has fallen away and it seems beyond our control. Our um, way of knowing ourselves is so comfortable that it has to fall away for us to be able to see ourselves any differently. Mm -hmm. When we change as opposed to experience transformation, we just add new things on top of, an already too big personality <laughs> in terms of Enneagram language. Right. And, um, you know, willpower, at least in relationship to the Enneagram, willpower is a myth that's fueled by emotion. And by that, I mean that you can't grit your teeth and clench your fists and make anything new happen in terms of your predictable habitual behavior in your Enneagram number or type or personality, whatever language you want to use for that. You have to learn to observe yourself non-judgmentally mm -hmm. in that personality yep. so that you can let uh, things that aren't serving you or the community or the world well fall away. And we are pretty clingy around these preferred ways of doing things even if they're not life-giving and not effective. Right, right. So just to repeat that, did you say willpower is a myth powered by emotion? Fueled by Fueled emotion. Fueled by emotion. Wow, that's beautiful. Yep. So is this the, unless the grain of wheat dies, it remains just a grain of wheat conversation? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And I, uh, I don't think we culturally are uh, dialed in to all of the paschal mystery mm -hmm. you know we uh, we kind of want to skip the dying part of we the rhythm of living and yeah yeah and that living dying rising piece is is the only pattern so we have <laughs> to learn to live in that with some kind of humility and grace mm. and you know i'm not trying to just throw around words i i think we have to have grace for ourselves and for everybody else and I think in humility, we have to understand that our way of doing things is just one 
way and there can always be more than one right way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, when we take this idea of transformation, especially in between relationships, um, where a third something, right, is going to arise, something more beautiful than we knew than before that interaction, something different, anew. Um, I, I had a question about the triads, because I've, I've always wondered, do, do we initially have a challenge getting along with people that are in different triads? Do we get along better with people within our own triads? For instance, do the two, threes, and fours get along? Do the eight, nines, and ones get along? Or um, is it just a, is it a mix? Can sometimes you get along, sometimes not, and sometimes uh, you get along easier than others. Do you have any insight into the triads and how they connect? Sure. Um, well, I would actually say it's a mix. You know, the, the Enneagram is different than other systems that are like it in that it's not static. Right. So at any given time in your personality or in your number, you can be healthy or average or unhealthy. You can be in excess in your number and you can be in pathology. (laughs) And if we take pathology off the table and we, we just uh, talk about healthy, average, unhealthy excess in your number, then you're actually up and down that all the time. And I'm, convinced after my years of teaching and learning from people I teach that the trick is not what your number is. The trick is how healthy you are in your number. Mm. And that's That's what determines how well you get along with other people. That's good. You know, back in the old days, the Enneagram is uh, ancient. And back in the old days, Enneagram masters would only teach you your number. Um, They're, understanding was that you didn't need to know anybody's number but your own Hmm. because you can't do anything about anybody but yourself. And now since the mid 1970s, we've got a lot that's been published about the Enneagram and we're left with the reality. Those of us who teach that we have to teach to all nine numbers, Um, which is, which there are two sides to everything. And there are two sides to that as well. So are you saying uh, when you learn about another number, um, is your hope that that, of course, leads you to greater empathy, more compassion? Um, hold my hand on that when you talk about it's one thing to become self-aware, uh, but it's a whole other thing to actually kind of take a walk around this color wheel um, and get to know, you know, how other people do live and see within the world. That's absolutely true, and I... I think just the understanding and and now that I mean, not just information and not just knowledge, but some wisdom, some understanding that literally there are nine ways of seeing and you can never change how you see. Mm. You can change what you do with how you see, but you can't change how you see. And we all live in the assumption that when we look at something, we're all seeing the same thing. And as soon as one can embrace that, that's not true, that we're not necessarily seeing the same thing, then that levels the playing field 
to the point that we can develop interest in what and how other people see. Hmm. And that changes the landscape for a relationship. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have any insight on how we relate to numbers where we go in stress? Um, for instance, a two goes to eight, um, right. but an eight goes to two in health. Um, right. Is, is there any insight there? Um, you know, just like I'm a three and I would go to nine. Does, do I have a challenge? Uh, I, I feel like I don't um, with peacemakers, but hold my hand on that. My language is that um, you can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. And you can't experience holistic healing without the number that you go to in security. Hmm. Added to that, I teach uh, and believe that I'm right, that in either one, you can go to the high side of the number, mid-range of the number, or the low side of the number. So traditional Enneagram teaching is that in stress, you go to the low side of that number. And in security, you take on behavior from the high side of the number you go to in security. And I, I just don't agree with that. I, I don't see that lived out and I don't think it's true. And so, um, as a two, if, if we talk about two and eight and four, as a two, I go to eight and stress, but the reality is I can't take care of myself without picking up some behavior that is normal or normative for eights and bringing it back with me. Mm. when I'm not stressed because then it helps me not um, create stressful situations for myself. So sharing a line on the Enneagram uh, between an eight and a two is um, a really good thing for both numbers because, and, and so their relationship can be understood in that they've each had an experience of behavior that's common to the other number. It it might be even easier for me to explain that by looking at two and four. So when I'm in a good place and things are kind of smooth, I have the uh, opportunity to take on some four behavior. And when fours are struggling and they need to take care of themselves, they need two behavior. And I could give you one example of how that works. Fours are almost always focused inward Hmm. and twos are almost always focused outward and both are lacking. So fours uh, uniqueness becomes self-indulgence when they are too focused inward and they don't spend enough time focusing outward and twos um, lose touch with themselves when they're focused outward all the time and they don't have that four behavior of turning inward and seeing what's inside of them that has value. So twos have to learn to um, experience healing from the inside out instead of from the outside in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that line helps do that. Yeah. So I guess kind of reading between the lines here, are you in the camp that says, you know what, no matter what number you're dominant in, um, Every number has something to teach you. And at some point, we can experience some of what the best of each number has to offer. Or or do we only have connection to 
two specific numbers on our wings and one and two, one where we go in stress and one where we go in health? Or is it truly um, there is a uh, there can be a oneness to the human experience uh, through the lens of the Enneagram? I think not only there can be a oneness to the human experience, I think there is a oneness mm. and we just have to uncover it. Mm. And the Enneagram by some authors from way back is referred to as the face of God. And, wow. you know, in the church and in our uh, ministry, which is a nonprofit, we try in our work in both places to always have those nine ways of seeing at the table when we're making decisions, big decisions, big decisions about what direction we'll go or what kind of programming we might drop and what we might pick up and all kinds of things. Because if we don't do that, we're leaving out a a way of uh, seeing and experiencing the world. Hmm. And so we're leaving out a, a subset of people. Wow. That's beautiful. Joe and I are uh, starting a new program that we're going to do together. And the first event is in Nashville, actually, uh, next weekend. And um, it's called the Thinking, Feeling, Doing Church. (laughs) We've kind of decided uh, through some work that we've done uh, with uh, evangelical pastors, um, actually, that – if a church is not in worship, offering something for people who are thinking dominant, something for people who are feeling dominant, and something for people who are doing dominant, then there's a group of people who are not connecting to the worship service. And advanced Enneagram work includes work with stances, which is, um, you know, triads are determined by which is dominant, thinking, feeling, or doing. And stances are determined by which is repressed thinking, feeling, or doing. And so we also believe that uh, church programming has a responsibility once it, once a church becomes Enneagram wise to offer programming that helps people bring up thinking or bring up feeling or bring up doing. So we've created this three-day program around how we can help churches evaluate where they are in all of that based Mm -hmm. on worship and programming and then ways that they might broaden their perspective a little bit so that everybody has a, a solid place to identify with and a solid opportunity to bring up their center of intelligence that might be the weakest of the three. Wow. That's beautiful. And I mean, I would, I would imagine that this, this conversation while it, um, is extremely necessary within the four walls of a church setting. I mean, how necessary is this in business within our families um, of giving everyone a voice at the table? Um, I think that's so important. And again, just reflects your heart for unity uh, and compassion and goodness in the world. Um, And is this going to be the first time you guys are doing this? Uh, Yes. Well, well. It is. We're going to do one in Idaho in the summer, and uh, then we're going to schedule some more after that. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to see how things go with the launching of the book. And 
my schedule's pretty full, but I left a few openings. And Joe, um, Highland Park it has 17,000 members. Yeah. And Joe's head of congregational care. So he has a big job that keeps him uh, here a lot. Yeah. And this is one event that, at least for now, I really want to teach with him. We're bringing in another young pastor from uh, Nashville who's going to teach it with me when Joe isn't available. Gotcha. Beautiful. Um, so I had a couple questions about some, some do's and don'ts as we talk about the, the Enneagram in relationships. And I, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. The first one being with parenting. Um, I've got two little girls. One is five and one is seven, Story and Sterling. My, oh. my sense is that Story is dominant in type two and um, Sterling is dominant in type four. That's my sense, but I could be wrong. Um, as you've engaged parents and the Enneagram conversation, um, I know we walk a fine line by labeling people by numbers. Um, I know that, that a beautiful tool like this, you also run the risk of it becoming something that it was never intended to be. Um, how, how do you engage the conversation? How do you encourage people um, who have been entrusted little souls to um, maybe use this tool within their home? Um, and by no means do I think I need to sit down with my five-year-old and say, okay, well, the four goes to, yeah, <laughs> goes sure. to stress. Um, but I think this is such a necessary conversation because the momentum behind the Enneagram is so large right now. And I think that it needs some empathy and compassion and some guidelines before we turn this into something that it never was intended to be. Okay, well, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> I figured you would. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll start with this. Um, with the exception of children who are adopted, uh, who are connected to post-adoption services, I don't teach anybody under the age of 16. Hmm. Um, I, I think, you, you know, your Enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. Yeah, yeah. So assigning numbers to people or types to people is foolish in every way that it could be foolish because we don't know what motivates other people. Yeah. On the other hand, we have this gift and um, there are certain needs that each number has. And the earlier we can meet that need, then the better it would be for those individuals. So, um, I've, I've danced around the Enneagram and parenting question. I um, will say, first, the best thing you can do using the Enneagram in relationship to parenting is use it to be the healthiest person you can be. Yep, that's a good word. That's number one. Um, my daughter, Joey, uh, is about to turn 40 this summer, and she's known the Enneagram for half of her life. And she and her husband, Billy, uh, are doing some teaching now. They've both been apprentices under me, and they're doing some teaching. And they are going to spend some of their time this summer pulling together um, some Enneagram and parenting workshops uh, with some 
curriculum around that ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be the overseer of all of that. And, um, I'm very excited about it. They, uh, have two boys. We are in a family with lots of children and my children are particularly good at being aunts and uncles to their nieces and nephews, which is an unexpected gift that I'm thrilled with. So, um, my son-in-law, Billy, um, is an educator too. And my daughter is vice president of a Catholic high school here in Dallas. And so they are going to be working to pull together something that will then publish and that they will be available to teach. We're going to use animals instead of numbers for children. And I'll run through those for you. Um, We think animals uh, have more freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And we think it's easier to talk to children about the behavior of animals and let them identify or not with that than it is to talk about the characteristics of a number. So we actually um, studied animals to see what number we thought they were as opposed to studying numbers and then choosing an animal. Interesting. Um, So here's our list. Uh, Worker bees are ones. Kangaroos are twos, eagles are threes, butterflies are fours, owls are fives, bunny rabbits are sixes, monkeys are sevens, lions are eights, and turtles are nines. That's good. And with children the ages of your children, you can do a lot with that. Yeah, 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 totally. And you can do a lot that will cause no harm. Mm -hmm. There's no... I mean, it's just a pure opportunity that ends up with just goodness everywhere. Well, and even me processing this question for you, I mean, until my, um, how could I use this, this, uh, what's the vernacular I'm looking for? Um, until my die before you die moment of mm-hmm. burnout, the three had his burnout at 29 or 30. I, yeah. I wasn't ready for any of these conversations there. I, I, I don't right. think, I don't think I could have heard it. Um, go, 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 build, 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 do, do, do. Like that was, that was 22 to 30. That's what they told me to do in college. And I did it, um, until that failed me. (laughs) And, uh, so I think, um, yeah. And you know, you need to be thankful for that failure, right? Oh my gosh. Every day. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think threes aren't, threes aren't very teachable until they've had a, Great humiliation. Yeah, that's it. That's that's where that's transformation right there. That's a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, and you would have avoided it at all cost until it was just total burnout. Sure. Um, Yeah. Well, and that's so helpful to me to um, to have that dialogue of uh, no, they don't. You don't need to determine their number today. Allow them to be young. Allow them to grow and mature. Um, Something's coming. I, I think we. I think Joey and Billy will come up with some hmm. really good, solid material that will be real healthy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm telling you, butterflies and kangaroos, that makes sense in yeah. the world. Yeah, so there you go. I um, Well, now, now, same question, but for marriage, because this this can be a dangerous weapon, right, unfortunately. Yes. If, 
you walk in and say, that's such a two thing to do. And of course you would say that yeah. you're such a two. How do you uh, hold this in a delicate way? Um, give us some guidelines, maybe some rules and ideas of, uh, look, the goal is transformation. The goal is unity. The goal is connection. The, the goal uh, is oneness. How, um, how would you encourage us as we read this book, which, by, again, the book is such a beautiful playbook uh, and gives wonderful insight into what we're thinking, feeling, how we see the world. Um, so I want people to definitely get a copy of it. But how would you say, look, before you start having these conversations within marriage, where should you begin? Well, I, I, um, I think the, the goal again is to be the healthiest person that you can be, but beyond that or not, but, and beyond that, I would say that I, I think we need every perspective. Things are really complex. And the problem we have is that um, my rules are you never assign any REM numbers to people. You don't ever take the test. There's not a shortcut to learning the Enneagram. I'm opposed to all of the tests. Hmm. And the third thing, because they don't measure motivation. And the third thing is that uh, whatever your number is, it's not better than any of the other eight. And you... Uh, should never, never, never use your Enneagram number as an excuse for your behavior, nor should you ever beat anybody up with what you know about their number. Hmm. I, those are just the basic ground rules yeah. that we all need to be yeah. embracing. Yeah. I think the second mistake we make is that we're all moving too fast. So um, Joe and I are real big on Sabbath keeping. The, there just has to be a time in the week when you stop and reset and breathe and find a new way of embracing your own gifts and shortcomings and those of everybody else. And a good pattern for starting to work on a relationship is to kind of make a rule that for a while, you're not going to make statements. You're just going to ask questions. Boy, that, that doggle hunt. It's a, <laughs> it is a, it's a tricky thing to say, uh, beautifully tricky. It's a beautifully wonderful trick to say. Uh, why would you say that? What, tell me how you see that. I don't understand that. Those are all completely different things than, well, that's wrong. This is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe and I are, Joe's a nine. So we, from that way outside uh, in the outer band, we look like we're the same number. Mm. We're both other referenced. We're both peace loving. We're, uh, we're both a, a lot alike and we're very different. Mm. And we decided early on that the gift we had to bring to our children was our difference, not our sameness. That's awesome. And, you know, you can stand united from different perspectives. Yeah. You, you don't have to stand on the exact same square, right? right. Yeah. Um, and then I think in honoring our differences, we've learned to 
uh, it's kind of like a dance. You know, we've learned to know when the other one should lead. Uh, we've learned to follow when that's the thing to do. The first time I ever danced with Joe, I'm a, you know, I grew up in the panhandle so uh, of Texas. I'm, I'm a country and Western dancer and I loved it always. And uh, Joe actually is a cowboy at heart. He likes to ride and rope and do all those things. And he too loves dancing. And I, I was accustomed to men asking me to dance who didn't know how. <laughs> and um, so Joe, we were at the state fair and Joe asked me one day, there was a band playing in the band show and he said, you want to dance? And I said, sure. And I thought, well, you know, he was a priest. There's no, there's no way he can dance. And we stumbled around for a little bit and he stopped and he said, you know, if, if you'll just let me lead, this will go really well. Listen to Joe. And, um, I, I learned from that moment. I didn't learn it in that moment, but I learned from that moment Hmm. that there are times when I just need to let him lead. Hmm. And he believes there are times when he just needs to let me lead. So think about any corporate structure that you're aware of. What if at different times, people on a senior leadership team took turns leading because of the way they see the world and the particular gifts they have as natural resources in their personalities, as opposed to everything in this column's in my purview and everything in this column is in yours. Be a totally different world. It would be a totally different world. And so I, I think in families, we have to make room for the giftedness of each person. And we have to be supportive of uh, opportunities for each person in the areas where they're not as strong to learn and then to practice and then to be able to do those things themselves. Wow. And I, it's, it takes me a little bit of time to explain it, but it really doesn't take that much time and energy to do it. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think we're trying very hard. Uh, I don't don't think we're trying very hard to work collectively. I think we are intuitively now driven by the culture. That's exactly right. Trying to have our way all the time. Do you you know Richard Foster's work? I Um, don't. He's a Quaker who wrote uh, a lot during the 1970s and 80s, some books that really changed my way of seeing the world. And he's probably one of the reasons that we do, um, that Protestants are now interested in classical spiritual disciplines. Hmm. He wrote a book called called The Celebration of Discipline. And he discussed in that book uh, 10 classical spiritual practices. And one of them was submission. And you know, I was the first women's basketball coach at SMU after Title IX, and I've I've had to uh, fight the good fight for women on a number of fronts. And submission was kind of a a big word for me, like it was it was a thing I didn't want to do, but mm. I never had really bothered to define it. Or, and I was reading in his book about submission, and he said, you know, 
Submission just means that you don't always have to get your own way. And I thought, well, I can do that. I don't always have to have my way. And I, I think we have to learn that we don't have to have our way before we can learn to uh, look at the way someone else would do it right. or the way someone else sees. Yeah. So there's an allowing and a letting go that comes before a taking on and a trying to do things differently. Yeah, yeah. A beautiful, that word before then had a much heavier negative connotation. You you found it to be a surrender and letting go, falling into something bigger and wider yeah. than you were yeah. at originally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, I love how 30 years in, I can still feel your curiosity in the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. um, I'm only it, three years in, and so like I'm just a pup <laughs> figuring, this, figuring all this out. Yeah, let me tell you where my curiosity has led me for right now. I'm starting some new work uh, in the recovery community. I'm convinced that uh, because behavior in each of the nine numbers is, uh, uh, you know, all sevens at the very bottom of unhealthy and in excess in their number, all sevens do the same thing and all twos do the same thing and all threes do the same thing. And so it occurred to me that if people uh, who are struggling with addiction learn the Enneagram when they're sober, if they have a sponsor that knows the Enneagram, um, then relapse is likely predictable hmm. for a high percentage of folks who struggle with addiction if they watch the behavior patterns that occur when they're at the unhealthiest bottom excess of their number. And uh, I've got a number of uh, professionals in the recovery community working with that theory, and looks like it may be true. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. It's very exciting. It sure is. Yeah. I think Hewitt says that the degree to which we become self-aware is the degree to which we can self-correct. Um, exactly. You know, that's, wow. Oh, man, and it just keeps morphing into... Um, that's, it, it's not static. And I, and I think we're just experiencing some of the ripples, uh, of, um, you know, what, what we have here with this beautiful and sacred tool of the Enneagram. I have an apprentice program. Uh, this is the last year I'm doing it. Actually, it's a three-year program and I, my third group is in their third year. I'm going to do a one-year program from now on. Cause I had way too many people on a waiting list, but in, in the apprentice program this time, uh, this weekend, actually, I'm going to do a lot of teaching of Gurdjieff and Naranjo and Uchazo. Yep, yep. And, um, it, you know, those guys have very heavy-handed ways of talking about uh, what we might be able to learn from this ancient but true system. And um, I read yesterday a quote from Naranjo from maybe eight or ten years ago talking about how he didn't want uh, the Enneagram to become cocktail talk. Mm -hmm. um, or we could use it and say cocktail talk or water cooler talk or uh, any of other group of things that we might label. And I 
I too am a little concerned about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, first of all, I think it's spiritual wisdom and I, I hate for that to be lost. And I think it's powerful and I hate for that to be lost. And so I'm real excited. I'm very excited about all the interest in the Enneagram. I sure wish I had ways to encourage everybody to go deeper than what their number is yeah. or, yeah. you know, it, it's just offers so much more than that. Yeah, it sure does. And I mean, I'm, I'm only probably about three years in and, um, it's, uh, for me, my, my litmus test is the fruits of the spirit. I mean, it's just kind of where I've, I've led this thing of, it's been a yeah. tool that's helped me, uh, both become, more um, a more loving, peaceful, kind, patient person in the world. It's also allowed me to entrust that same offering to a stranger, to those that I've been entrusted in relationship, and so forth. Um, and so I agree with you. It it um, probably one of the least effective things we can do is, you know, the cocktail party. What number are you? Yeah. Um, you're way more beautiful than that, and there's way more mystery to you than just. A number, but it's a beautiful way and lens uh, to navigate the world through, uh, both for yourself and those relationships. Um, so, the path between us, April tenth, everywhere good books are sold. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I'm I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited. I'm like a little kid. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and and I guess where else can our listeners go to find out more about you, your workshops? Uh, social media, websites, where's, where's the best place for them to find out more information? about? You can you? find all of it on SuzanneStabile.com. Beautiful. Well, uh, Suzanne, let me just say from, uh, we're, we're too close to not know each other. I need to come see That's you. Absolutely true. You go on uh -huh. there and figure out uh, what of the workshops that are available, which yep. one you'd like to come to. And I'd love to have you come as my guest. Well, all you have to do is call and tell them you're coming. That'll be wonderful. I will take you up on that. Um, on behalf of all of us, thank you for your good and necessary work. Um, love what you're doing in the world. So thankful for it. And um, can we have you back? Can can we do Su Susan Stabile 2.0 sometime? Sure, I'd love to do that. Beautiful. Well, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for joining us. All righty. Thank you. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car. Uh, you allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be loved.